And I want to begin by turning our attention to a photograph that I have on the screen. It is of the Rosetta Stone that is currently at the British Museum in London. It weighs about 1,700 pounds. And on it is described or inscribed the royal decree made by Ptolemy V, who lived about 200 years before the time of Christ. And this is a significant discovery made by Napoleon, and it was significant because it had the decree that was made by Ptolemy V in three different languages. It was in the language of Greek, Demotic, and Egyptian hieroglyphics. And for centuries, scholars had been trying to crack Egyptian hieroglyphics. They could not understand and come up with a code to decipher what the Egyptians were trying to portray. And the significance of the Rosetta Stone was that the same decree was in three different languages, and a gentleman by the name of um, Jean-Francois Champillon used the Rosetta Stone and cracked the Egyptian hieroglyphic code and soon after published the Egyptian Hieroglyphic Dictionary. The Rosetta Stone became a significant landmark discovery that opened an understanding of Egyptian hieroglyphics that had prior to that period been undiscoverable. And as we had noted in our earlier presentations or presentation yesterday, we noted that the sanctuary is the map. It is the key that unlocks the work and ministry of Jesus Christ at the cross and as our high priest in heaven. And Psalm 77, 13 says, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Amen? Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. And as we discussed yesterday, Jesus fulfilled the role on planet earth as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here it is in John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This introduction by John the Baptist is impossible to decipher without the sanctuary key. You can't understand what John is saying in John chapter 1, verse 29, apart from the sanctuary code or apart from the sanctuary key. And then in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that Jesus has ascended into heaven as our high priest. And this is found in Hebrews chapter 8. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty where? In heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So, John used the sanctuary as the interpretive key, as the hermeneutical code or the key to understand Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here, after the cross, Paul uses the sanctuary as the hermeneutical lens, the key to understanding Jesus after the cross, 
as our high priest in heaven. And this, as we noted yesterday, is what many Protestants today have rejected the idea of a heavenly sanctuary and Jesus ministering on our behalf there. Now, this is a pivotal quote for Seventh-day Adventists, and it's found in the book Great Controversy, page 423. The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of His people. Here Ellen White is stating that the Seventh-day Adventist Church continues to use the sanctuary as the hermeneutical key, the reference point, for understanding the work and ministry of Jesus Christ after 1844. So, we are in a very good lineage. John used the sanctuary as the interpretive key for understanding Jesus at the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul uses the sanctuary key as the hermeneutical code or code breaker to understanding Jesus after the cross. And the significant contribution of Seventh-day Adventists is using the sanctuary for understanding Jesus and His work in the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf from 1844 to this present day. Now, on Friday, we'll be going through some of the detractors to the sanctuary doctrine and how it seems like in every generation the sanctuary comes under attack. Ellen White says in the book Great Controversy that the sanctuary is the central pillar of the Adventist faith. Now, there are several Adventist pillars. Sabbath, Second Coming, State of the Dead. She states that the sanctuary is the central pillar. Now, if you have an edifice or a structure and you remove the central pillar, the entire theological structure crumbles. And this is why I believe it seems like in every generation, it seems that the sanctuary comes under attack. We mentioned yesterday Desmond Ford, one of my professors in college, was a colleague of Desmond Ford, and he said that Desmond Ford had a photographic memory. It was back in the days before CD-ROM, and he said it was faster to go to Desmond Ford for an Ellen White quote than going to the E.G. White Index. He could tell you the page number her quotation was on. He was a genius. He passed away this year. Desmond Ford got his training at an evangelical university. And friends, we need to support higher education, but also recognize that we need to filter everything through the Word of God. And he had adopted an evangelical paradigm that could not come to grips with the notion of a cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. The evangelical mindset is that once saved, you are always saved. The Protestants, for the most part, camp out in the courtyard. They don't believe in moving into the holy place, much less a most holy place experience. And so Desmond Ford's framework, his theological structure, was courtyard-centered, and he 
could not accept the idea of an investigative judgment. He said that the heavenly sanctuary did not exist, it was heavenly geography, and in 1979-1980, we had a great falling out in our church. We had a meeting with church leaders at Glacier View, and a great many members and pastors in the Seventh-day Adventist church ended up leaving for another denomination. If you throw out the sanctuary, we have no reason to exist. We are in the wrong church. So, it's important for us to have a solid understanding of the sanctuary message, knowing that it is our identity that drives our mission. One of my professors at the seminary, Fernando Canali, emeritus professor of theology, he states this, leaders, administrators, pastors, and scholars should be going back to Scripture and using the sanctuary doctrine as the hermeneutical key to understand the complete and harmonious system of biblical truth. This is a challenge for our church today because we have inadvertently used a different lens for understanding the gospel. We have used culture. We have used an evangelical paradigm. And I like to use the analogy of of glasses. I have glasses and Unbeknownst to us, when we read Scripture, we are not only receiving information from the text, but we are also projecting information onto the text. It used to be assumed from an Enlightenment paradigm that we were coming to things objectively, like we were film and the text would project onto us and we would be able to arrive at objective truth. But the reality is that when we read Scripture, not only is the text projecting onto us, but we are projecting onto the text presuppositions, biases, assumptions, and culture, which skew our understanding. Case in point, in American politics today, and I'm not going to go into that rabbit hole, but you can look at the same thing the same data, the same quote-unquote empirical evidence, and you have individuals arriving at diametrically opposite conclusions. Why is that? It's because of our presuppositions. Presuppositions are powerful things, and all of us approach the text with biases. By the grace of God, we need to surrender those biases to the great I Am, and through reading Scripture, our presuppositions become more honed and refined. We need to let go of culture, amen? We need to let go of what I think the text should say and bow to Scripture and take off our shoes from our far feet because we are on holy ground. So, the sanctuary is a lens. It is a frame of reference that we need to use to understand the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ And if we are not using the sanctuary, if we're using a popular teacher, even in Adventism today, we are replacing the sanctuary hermeneutic for something else. Now, it used to be that as Seventh-day Adventists, we were known as people of the book. We were known as bookworms. One Seventh-day Adventist scholar said, 
Now we have become tapeworms, back in the way, day of cassettes. Now, I'm not saying that we should not listen to Seventh-day Adventist ministers, but we, that should not be a replacement for your own personal study of the Word of God. And we live in the age of the Adventist celebrity. There's nothing wrong with watching individuals, and I praise the Lord for Seventh-day Adventist media, but we cannot base our eternal salvation on some man's interpretation of Scripture. Amen? And it's time that we read the Bible more than we read books about the Bible. And in the end, we're told that many bright lights will go out, and all Satan has to do is lead some prominent charismatic preacher or teacher or theologian astray, knowing that the masses will follow him or her blindly. The sanctuary is the most critical interpretive key that we can use, and here we have on the screen a bird's eye view of the Mosaic sanctuary. Yesterday we said that the whole purpose of the sanctuary is to move us from outside of the sanctuary into the courtyard, into the holy place, and into the most holy place. We said yesterday that Adam and Eve, before the fall, were in a face-to-face relationship with God. God would walk in the evening in the cool of the day, have a conversation with them after the fall. This was no longer possible. Moses was told, you cannot see my face. And when you look on the screen, you will see that God wants to move us from right to left, from the courtyard experience to the holy place experience, to the most holy place experience. And in Revelation chapter 22, the Bible says that we will be able to see the face of God. In other words, God has been successful in His plan of restoration. Now, one of my favorite books is the book Education. If you want an inspiring read, I want to encourage you to read especially the first few chapters, read the entire book, but the first few chapters lays the framework of Ellen White's understanding and philosophy of Seventh-day Adventist education. Seventh-day Adventist education was to be the head and not the tail. If we would have followed Ellen White's vision of Seventh-day Adventist education, the world would be coming to us and us not to the world. You just look at Madison College and how prominent individuals from all over the world went to Madison to see what they were doing there. And God is calling us back to the ideal of what Seventh-day Adventist education is to be. I want to read this quotation from the book Education, page 15 and 16. To restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, to promote the development of body, mind, and soul, that the divine purpose in His creation might be realized, this was to be the work of redemption. She also says that in the highest sense, the work of education and the work of redemption are one. In other words, education should be salvific. Education should lead our young people not out of the church, but into the church. Education should lead our children and our youth to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. And here she says that the work 
of salvation is restoration. It is to bring us all the way back to Eden restored. That is God's telos. That is God's goal to bring us all the way back. When we look at Adam and Eve, immediately after they sinned, there was a physiological um, sensation that came over them. They immediately noticed that there was a certain chill or cool in the air. The book Patriarchs and Prophets tells us that there was a robe of light that was around Adam and Eve, and as soon as they ate of that fruit, that robe of light disappeared. And the Bible says that they noticed that they were naked and they were ashamed. This is the, the first physiological experience, but it was a lot deeper than that. There was an emotional, psychological experience that they had. Immediately after they sinned, they felt shame. Have you ever sinned? Have you felt shame after you've sinned? But notice that Jesus died on the cross. He died naked on the cross. In other words, He took our shame on the cross. Adam and Eve, the lights went out, and they felt shame. Notice what they did to compensate for this experience of shame. I don't know what those fig leaves look like. It must have been quite uh, a sight, but they got gathered together, somehow a makeshift covering of fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And this is the universal reaction of those that have sinned. We try to cover our shame with our own righteousness. God came down and walked in the garden, and He asked them, where are you? And before He led Adam and Eve outside of the garden, the Bible indicates that God did something for them. He took one look at Adam and Eve and said, look, that's not going to suffice for you. And the Bible says that He made them coats of skin. Now, in the Hebrew, these coats of skin imply that they came from an animal. Scholars believe that this was the first sacrifice that took place there in Eden. An animal had to die in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed. This was the first symbolism of the clothing of Christ's righteousness. A sacrifice in Eden before they were left out or led out of the garden, and they were covered with a skin-type robe, or it was a skin robe that Adam and Eve were covered in. This is the first implication that the sanctuary services and the sacrifices were not instituted at Mount Sinai, but there, right after sin, there was a sacrifice, and Adam and Eve were covered in coats of skin. The robe of righteousness cost someone something. That was the implication there in the garden. Another interesting fact about the Garden, garden of Eden is that in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24, the Bible says that God placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword 
flashing back and forth. Notice that the entrance to the Garden of Eden was on which side? It was on the east side, and the Bible says that there were cherubim, or was a cherubim there, and a flaming sword. Now, the translation in the English is a little bit obscure because in the Hebrew, that flaming sword refers to the Shekinah glory. So, here you have cherubim, which is also sanctuary language. You have the flaming sword, which has implications about the Shekinah glory, and it's on the east side of the garden. The pen of inspiration in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 62, says, at the cherubim-guarded gate of paradise, the divine glory was revealed. Hither came Adam and his sons to worship God. At the cherubim-guarded gate of paradise, the glory of God was revealed. And hither came the first worshipers. Here their altars were reared and their offerings presented. It was here that Cain and Abel had brought their sacrifices, and God had condescended to communicate with them. Notice the terminology she uses. She says that the glory was revealed here, and it is here that Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices. It was here that Adam and Eve and his descendants would come to worship God at the cherubim-guarded gate. Now, another interesting aspect of the east side of the gate was in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 17, after Cain kills Abel, God has a conversation with Cain. And notice what God says to Cain. He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. When I first read this text a number of years ago, I had this mental image in my mind of sin that is crouching at the door like some animal that is ready to pounce on you if you sin. When you look at it in the original language, the word sin there can also be translated sin offering. Uh, this is a quotation from Richard Davidson. He says, recent studies of this verse provide evidence from the Hebrew that the word kata, which can either mean sin or sin offering, should be better translated as sin offering and not sin in this verse, and the word pata, door opening. Here refers to the cherubim-guarded door gate of paradise where sinful human beings were to bring their sacrifices, paralleling the numerous uses of Patak in the Torah over 40 times, describing the door of the tabernacle. So let's read it again and put sin offering there. Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, the sin offering is crouching at the door. When you look at the structure of the sanctuary, and this is the mosaic view of the sanctuary, notice that the entrance to the sanctuary is on the east side, just like Eden. And is there a sin offering that is crouching at the door? Absolutely. 
So scholars believe that the reference that was made to Cain was a salvific statement saying, look, if you sin, there is a sin offering that is crouching at the door. There are two important aspects of how God deals with sin, specifically in the courtyard, and it is how God immediately dealt with Adam and Eve. First, He covered them. Yesterday we said that if we find a baby that is naked and dirty here on campus, no parents or adults around, the first thing that you're going to do is cover the baby. And then if you still cannot find an adult and you have that baby for over 24 hours, you're going to take that baby home and you're going to give the baby a bath. This analogy is very fitting because it's the way that God deals with us. The first thing that God did with Adam and Eve was to cover their nakedness. And in the sanctuary, the second object or article of furniture is the, um, the laver where God cleanses. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, this covering is mentioned. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, when you look at the sanctuary, you'll notice that when you come into the sanctuary, the first article of furniture that you come to is the altar burnt offering. You accept Jesus as your Savior. You are covered with His robe of righteousness, and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You are saved. And if you were to die today, you would be in the kingdom. Amen? So the sanctuary illustrates this powerful idea that salvation is something that you can have today. And as long as you're in that relationship with Him, He says, I want you to walk with me. And the sanctuary illustrates that it's not how far you get, but it's about being in the process. I want to read a few quotations here. This is from Ellen White. Our High Calling, page 51, the sinner's defects are covered by the perfection and the fullness of the Lord our righteousness. God is in the business of covering your sin. Now, we are not to cover our sins. The Proverbs that says, if we cover our sins, we will not prosper. It's God's role to cover our sins. Now, do you have some things in your life that you would not want anyone in the world to see. Amen? Would you want everything that you've done in your life to be flashed on the screen before the entire camp meeting? I praise the Lord that He is in the business of covering. And during the millennium, that's one motivation for me to be in the millennium, because if I don't make it, I don't want anyone opening my books and wondering, why didn't Pastor Shin make it? You know, oh, that's why he didn't make it. You make it to heaven, and someone tries to pull up your record, it's going to say, covered by the blood. Amen. The, the file has been deleted. Praise the Lord. So God is in the business of covering your sin. And the, that's the first thing that He does. He covers you, and He declares you righteous. This is righteousness by faith. You come in the door, you accept Jesus as your Savior, and you are covered with His robe of righteousness. And you accept this reality by faith. 
So following the sanctuary, in the courtyard, we are covered at the altar, and we are cleansed at the laver. So this is a very simple, illustrative way that God tells us the plan of salvation. God has us come into the door of the sanctuary. We are covered by the robe of righteousness. Then Jesus takes us to the laver to cleanse us. He covers and He cleanses. And according to the sanctuary, it is in that order. That covering is a symbol of God's acceptance. Amen? I read about a gentleman, he lives in the Middle East, and he, he received a lot of infamous press because he had not taken a bath for over 70 years. A group of individuals uh, tried to help him by offering him a shower, and he ran away. Now, this individual, I would say that 99% of the individuals in this room would not give this man a hug until he has taken a bath. But here we see that in the plan of salvation, God covers us and then He cleanses us. In other words, His acceptance of us is not predicated on our condition. His acceptance of us is predicated on our willingness to surrender. And even that surrender is a gift. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's the covering. And notice the second part. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Covering and cleansing. We're covered at the altar, we're cleansed at the laver. The book Steps to Christ, I want to encourage you to read this book every year. I endeavor to. Steps to Christ, page 52. Jesus loves to have us come to Him just as we are. Sinful, helpless, dependent. We may come with all our weakness, our folly, our sinfulness, and fall at His feet in penitence. It is His glory to encircle us in the arms of His love and to bind up our wounds and to cleanse us from all impurity. What is justification? We're justified in the courtyard. That's where it begins. Justification is pardon, forgiveness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. What Jesus does for you the objective gospel, Christ's robe of covering, and God's declaration. Justification takes place in the courtyard, and it is where God declares you righteous, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, having been declared righteous then by faith, justification is the act of God declaring a person righteous. The beauty of this reality is that when Jesus covers you with the robe, he sees the righteousness of Christ, and you stand before God as though you have never sinned. Faith I Live By, page 112, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just. I want to read a few quotations here from Ellen White. 
Some people have assumed that Ellen White was a legalist. Other people have assumed that prior to 1888, Ellen White did not understand righteousness by faith. Friends, that is revisionist history. She was the one that supported Jones and Wagner in Minneapolis. She had an understanding of righteousness by faith prior to 1888. Some people have said, look, we can't accept any of Ellen White's writings prior to 1888. Quite the contrary, Ellen White had a profound understanding of what righteousness by faith was. I want to read a few quotations here. Faith I live by, page 111. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. She goes on, There is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. She goes on, If you would gather together everything that is good and holy and noble and lovely in man, and then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in the salvation of the human soul or in merit, the proposition would be rejected as treason. The thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, not because of any merit on our part, but as a free gift from God, is a precious thought. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented. For he knows that if the people receive it fully, this power will be broken. If he can control the mind so that doubt and unbelief and darkness shall compose the experience of those who claim to be the children of God, he can overcome them with temptation. I have on the screen a photograph of a man that is on a pilgrimage in Asia. And in this tradition, in this religion, you can see that he has these wooden clogs on his hands. What you don't see is that he has this full-body leather apron that he wears. And when these individuals begin this pilgrimage, they take six steps and then go into a full prostrate position, just like you're seeing here. They stand up and then go another six steps, stand up, go another six steps into a full prostration, and this goes on mile after mile. They are rubbing these clogs and their skin, and this goes on for 1,200 miles. It takes months for them to make this pilgrimage. By the end of this pilgrimage, their faces are blackened from the dust, and they arrive at the end of their pilgrimage to this, quote, sacred site. And the reason why they're doing this is to earn their salvation. Ellen White says the premise 
of every false religion is righteousness by works. The attempt to earn one's salvation and justification is not based on any human merit. I have a photograph on the screen of a flight from South America going across the ocean. It was flight 447 from Rio to Paris, crashed in May 31, 2009, and it took two years to find the black box. Once they found the black box and discovered what had taken place, this plane had gone into what they called a full stall. Now, I'm not a pilot, but uh, I want to read to you a little bit about what a full stall is. As the angle of attack increases, so does lift efficiency, but only up to a point where the angle becomes too steep and the oncoming air can no longer flow smoothly over the tops of the wings. At that point, the airplane stalls. So according to flight theory, the nose of the airplane should be tipped a little bit up. This allows the the air to flow over and lift to take place, but if the nose of the plane is too high, the airplane stalls and the airplane literally falls out of the sky. When they uncovered the black box, the captain went back to sleep and he had his first officer take control. And what had taken place was that the pilot felt like he was descending. So he pulled the nose of the airplane up. And even though he did that, he still did not feel that his airplane was ascending, so he pulled it up even more. Finally, all these alarm bells are going off, and by the time the captain awoke out of his sleep, the airplane had literally fallen out of the sky, and all of the passengers had fallen to their death. Friends, we cannot base our justification experience on feeling. Amen? Some days you feel good, some days you don't. Some days you're just tired. Now, when I accepted the Lord, I had a wonderful euphoric experience. Not everyone's is like that, but I got up the next morning and I felt like I had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. But as my Christian experience developed, some days I did not feel like praying. Some days I didn't feel like reading the Bible, but I did it anyway. Your feelings come and feelings go. Sometimes it's physiological. Sometimes you didn't get enough sleep the night before. Sometimes it's because you ate too much the night before. Amen. And so when you get up in the morning, just because you don't feel your faith does not mean that your status with God has changed. And you know in your marriage relationships, do you always feel like you did when you were dating? No. Do you always feel like you did on your wedding day? Feelings come and feelings go. And this is why we say that the just shall live by faith. I want to read a few other quotations here. Our High Calling, page 119. Faith is not a happy flight of feeling. It is simply taking God at His Word, believing that He will fulfill His promises 
because he has said we would. Want to read on? Faith and feeling are as distinct from each other as the East is from the West. Faith is not dependent on feeling. Daily, we should dedicate ourselves to God and believe that Christ understands and accepts the sacrifice without examining ourselves to see if we have the degree of feeling that we should think this corresponds with our faith. Faith I Live by, page 113. Those who accept of Christ are, looking upon, are looked upon by God, not as they are in Adam, but as they are in Jesus Christ. As sons and daughters of God, we are not to be anxious about what Christ and God think of us, but what God thinks of Christ, our substitute. The just shall live by faith. Now, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, because here, I believe, is a powerful example of the courtyard experience and justification. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus has just given the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon was so powerful and so profound that the multitude began to follow Jesus down the mountain. Verse 1, after the Sermon on the Mount, And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. A leper was an outcast in society. It was the equivalent of the Ebola virus today. If someone walked into this room with Ebola, I guarantee, and they were bleeding out of every orifice in their body, all of us would likely run from that individual. Ebola is highly contagious. Leprosy was the modern equivalent. And this man approached Jesus, and that crowd parted like the Red Sea. And in this scene is Jesus and the leper. And the man asks Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The man is asking for cleansing. And notice how Jesus interacts with this leper. In verse 3, the first thing that Jesus does, then Jesus put out his hand and touched him. I would imagine there was a hush and probably a gasp that went over that entire multitude. Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus reached out and touched that man. That touch was a touch of acceptance. Notice the order that Jesus does this. Jesus didn't say, be clean, and then I will touch you. Jesus touches the man first. In other words, this is a symbol of acceptance and covering. Jesus embraces this man. He accepts him. He touches him. And then the second thing that he does, 
is he says, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. The leper came to Jesus just the way that he was. In the same way that Jesus related to the leper is the same way that he relates to you and I as sinners. He accepts us, he covers us with his robe, and then he cleanses us. So what is to be my response to the mercies of God? And this is also exemplified in the first article of furniture on the screen. I have an artist's depiction of a gentleman by the name of Henry Martin. He was a Cambridge scholar. He was a genius. He had warts covering his hands and his feet. He was a spectacle to look at, and the account goes that many times he would watch the cricket games from a distance because of his appearance. He was so embarrassed, and there was a young lady by the name of Lydia that fell in love with Henry Martin because of the mind that he was and the gentleman that he was. And they were about to get married. Henry Martin was sitting in a church one day, and he heard the story and the need for India. He felt the call to be a missionary there. Excited out of that church meeting, he ran to Lydia and said, I have a burden to go to India. Let's get married and go there together. Lydia took one look at him and said, there's one place in the world that I never want to go, and that's India. He said, how can you say that? She said, I don't know, but that's the way I feel. And so he went back to his room in a turmoil. Would it be Lydia or India? Would it be Lydia or India? And finally he realized it wasn't between Lydia and India, it was between Lydia and God. While he was making his decision, one of his colleagues said, you have a bright future ahead of you. You have the whole world at your feet. Don't throw it away. Henry Martin took one look at him and said, which world are you speaking of, sir? So this man went to India and later to Persia, and he was dragged across the desert in chains and died at the age of 31. 31. And many of us would say, what a waste of a life. But before he died, he left the world, the translation of the Bible, in three different languages. When we ask ourselves the question, what is my response to the mercies of God and the courtyard experience, I'm reminded of stories like Henry Martin, of individuals that were willing to sacrifice all. And I recently finished a book by Alan Hirsch entitled The Forgotten Ways. And he takes a critical analysis of the Protestant church and specifically the megachurch movement and this is what he says, I came to the conclusion that there must be something about middle-class culture that seems to run contrary to the authentic gospel values. And this is not to make a statement about middle-class people per se. I myself am from a very middle-class family. But rather than to isolate some of the values and assumptions that seem to come along, as part of the deal. We need to be especially aware of cultural values that we take for granted 
because we cannot easily see them. I noted earlier that much of what goes by the name of middle class involves a preoccupation with safety and security developed mostly in the pursuit of what seems best for our children. This focus is understandable as long as it does not become obsessive. But when these, middle, or when these impulses of middle-class culture fuse with consumerism, as they most often do, we can add the obsession with comfort and convenience to the list. This is not, good. This is not a good mix, at least as far as the lordship of Jesus, discipleship, the gospel, and missional movements are concerned. I really had to examine my own heart as I read this book, and I had to ask myself the question, have I allowed comfort, convenience, and consumerism, which are core to middle-class American values, cloud my view and understanding of what Christianity really is? One theologian said, how do we know that we are worshiping Jesus and not a middle-class American that lives in the suburbs and drives an SUV? In other words, have we made Jesus into our own image and have we critically examined our own cultural milieu without discriminating between what is cultural and what is Christian? In examination of my own heart, I have noted how consumerism and comfort, rather than Judeo-Christian values, have skewed my understanding as to what Christianity really is. And if Jesus were to live today, would my Christian, quote, consumerism conflict with the Jesus that is alive ministering on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. In Luke chapter 14, verse 33, these are the words of Jesus in the first century. And notice the radical nature of the clarion call of discipleship. Luke chapter 14, verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. This was the cost of discipleship, the willingness to give up everything to follow Jesus Christ. When you look in the sanctuary, the altar of burnt offering, this object of furniture, there was a sacrifice that was most predominant in the Old Testament, and it was the first type of sacrifice that is recorded in the book of Genesis. And it's found in Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1 describes what is called the burnt sacrifice or the burnt offering. I want to give a description of the burnt offering. This is from Leviticus chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Then the priests Aaron's sons shall lay the parts, the head, the fat, in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails, its legs with water, and the priest shall burn how much? All on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, 
a sweet aroma to the Lord. This was a unique sacrifice. Um, the sin offering and the trespass offering, the priests would get a portion. Some of the other sacrifices, uh, the, the person bringing the sacrifice would get a portion. But in this case, the entire sacrifice was burned on the altar. I want to read this reference from verse 12 and 13. And he shall cut it in pieces. With its head, its fat, the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. Then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, some individuals will consider this a waste, bringing a perfectly healthy animal no one gets any part of it. The entire animal is consumed on the altar. And when God smells this sacrifice, the Bible says that the sacrifice is considered sweet. It is something that touches the heart of God. One theologian said the head represents the mind and the intellect. The inwards represent the will and the emotions. The legs indicate the walk, which represents conduct and lifestyle. The fat represents health and virility. And in a way, this was a unique sacrifice because the person that was bringing the animal was symbolically placing himself on the altar. The offerer placed himself symbolically on the altar, his entire life devoted wholly to God. In other words, what you were saying was, all that I am is Christ. It was an act of total surrender. No aspect of the animal was left behind. And when that animal was placed on the altar, the person bringing that sacrifice was saying symbolically, I am laying myself on the altar. This is the first sacrifice that's described in Leviticus chapter 1. And it alludes to the reality of the person's response to the mercies of God. Here it is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore. Now, anytime you read the word therefore, it's a concluding statement. You have premise, 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 therefore. So prior to this, Paul has just elaborated on the mercies of God, justification, the just shall live by faith, sanctification. He alluded to the beauties of glorification. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, based on everything that I have just talked about to this point, based on the beautiful gospel that God has given to us, based on the mercies of God, this is to be our response, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, the sinner's response to the grace of God, to the mercies of God, is to say, Lord, I give you my all. And Paul says, this is reasonable. It's not irrational, it is reasonable. 
In Leviticus chapter 2, we have the second sacrifice that is described. The first one, all that I am is Christ. The second one that was burned on the altar. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, the offering is to be the finest of flour. They are to pour olive oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's son, the priest. The priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all of the incense and burn it as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the food offering presented to the Lord. By this burnt offering, the worshiper professed and affirmed, all that I am is Christ, and then on the basis of this dedication, further declared through his meal offering, all that I have is Christ. This is according to Leslie Harding. So Leviticus chapter 1, all that I am is Christ. Leviticus chapter 2, all that I have is Christ. The response of every Christian to the gospel call. Jim Elliott, who paid the ultimate price as a missionary to South America, says this, Father, let me be weak that I might loose my clutch on everything temporal. My life, my reputation, my possessions, Lord, let me loose the tension of the grasping hand. How often I've released a grasp only to retain what I have prized, releasing all that I may be released, so let me release my grasp. Clifford Goldstein, in his book, The Bestseller, describes how his life goal was to be a novelist. He was living in a kibbutz in Israel, and he wanted to write a bestseller tells of that fateful night when he accepted Jesus as his Savior. And I want to describe and read his account as told by himself. He says, One night the Lord came to me and just said to me, Lord, just said to me, you've been playing with me long enough. If you want me tonight, burn the novel. And in that instant, the Lord showed me that the novel was my God. And nothing else in the world meant more to me than that book. That book was everything to me. But then it's fascinating because I had all this back and forth, and then finally at one point I surrendered. I said, okay, God, I want you, I want truth more than I want this novel. And once I made that choice, I made that surrender, all the turmoil and all the struggle lifted. I've never been sorry. My life radically, radically changed, and that was the night I became a born-again believer. Do you have things in your life that you're holding on to, that you're struggling to surrender Christ's Object Lessons, page 159, says, No outward observances can take the place of simple faith and entire renunciation of self 
but no man can empty himself of self. We can only consent for Christ to accomplish the work. Then the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. Steps of Christ, page 47, moving on very quickly. Many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? You desire to give yourself to Him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt, and controlled by the habits of your life. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will, the power of choice God has given to men. It is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections, but you can choose to serve Him. You can give Him your will. Thus, your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. When I was growing up, I was a TV addict. My parents noticed that when I sat in front of the television, I was mesmerized for hours. They didn't want to get rid of their television, so they prayed a prayer and said, Lord, help us raising our son. One night we came home, it was Friday night, all the doors of our house were open, our lights were on, and guess what was missing? Our television. I was quite upset. As I got into ministry, I was in Bering Springs, Michigan, one night I got into a bidding war on eBay and I inadvertently won a television, accidentally. So I got this television, placed it in my room, and you know how it goes. In the beginning, I began watching 3ABN. I wish it would have stayed there, but after that, I started watching other things that were more in the quote-unquote gray area. And then before long, I was watching things that I was ashamed of. I knew I was in trouble when one day I woke up, and rather than reaching for my Bible, I reached for the remote. And so I prayed this prayer. I said, Lord, I love television. You know, sometimes we can pray such fake prayers. I said, Lord, I love this television. I love media. I'm an addict. Help me to hate it. I give you my will. As soon as I got up from that prayer, by faith, I took that television vision, placed it in a box, and delivered it to the Adventist Community Service Center. And it reminds me of this quotation from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 142. She says, The will must be placed on the side of God's will. You are not able of yourself to bring your purposes and desires 
and inclination into submission to the will of God. And notice this part. But if you are willing to be made willing, God will accomplish the work for you. In other words, you can pray and say, Lord, I don't have the desire. I love this sin. Help me to hate it. You can say, Lord, help me to be willing, to be made willing, to be made willing. I don't even have the desire. Repentance is a gift. The Bible says God wants to give us repentance, a sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. And I don't know what you're dealing with, friends, here this morning. You may have an addiction. You may have a habit. You may have something in your life that you're holding on to, and you've try to conquer this thing on your own, and it seems like this addiction in your life has an iron grip. You can go to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I love this thing. Help me to desire something else, something better. Give me the desire to desire. This is what surrender looks like. And as we close here this morning, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us, Lord, in light of the mercies of God, to respond by giving ourselves as a complete sacrifice to you. Help us the desire to desire to be made willing, to be made willing. And Lord, I'm wondering if there's someone here today that wants to say, Lord, there's something in my life that is keeping me from Jesus. Something that I'm holding on to that is keeping me from a full relationship with you. And you want to pray the prayer that Ellen White described by saying, Lord, Help me to be willing to be made willing. If that's your desire, with every head bowed and eyes closed, I want to invite you to raise your hand today and say, Lord, I surrender. Help me willing to be made willing. Lord, you see these hands. May you seal them by your Holy Spirit. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.